What up, Oasis people? All right, all right, we'll work into it. Welcome, welcome. We are in a series called I Am, where we are learning and answering the question, who is Jesus? And we are at week four, which means it's time for a pop quiz. Come on, you're, you're fine. You're gonna hang in there. You don't, you don't have to participate, but some of you please do. So week one, Nate, if you could put that up there. Week one, Jesus said in John 10, he said, I am the gate. gate. Let's go, one for one. Two, week two, Jesus said again in John 10, he said, I am the good shepherd. And then last week, there was like 14 of you here. Um, but in that, we learned from John 15, Jesus declared, I am the vine. Let's go, pulling it together for the team. We are in week four, which means we are on to a, a new statement from Jesus this week. But in each and every one of these statements that Jesus is making, he's revealing something about himself. And as he does that, he teaches us what it means to follow him. And so the reason I give you a pop quiz, and some of you are still a little anxious thinking about the pop quiz you failed back in high school, but the reason I give you the pop quiz is because I want us to continuously go back. Go back, read through the book of John, go to John 10, go to John 14, go to John 15, sit in those chapters and see what Jesus says. Remind yourself of who he is and what it means to follow him. But on to the next week, Jesus will make another statement and this statement is directly tied to the question, who is God? Who is God? How do you answer that? Imagine for a second you are walking down the street Someone comes up to you and asks you this question. They drop a theological bomb of a question on you, but you're faced with this person looking for you to answer. Maybe you're in your classroom, you're at your workplace, you're at your apartment, you're with your family, and for some reason, someone comes up to you and asks you this three-worded question, who is God? How do you answer that? I can see some of you a little struggling with it. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a short question, but it's not an easy question. Because to start, you have to first understand who God is, right? There's a lot of intellectual, theological work you have to put in. But then there's the part where you take what you know and you communicate it. I got a comm studies degree from SDSU, which if you're a comm studies major, let's just be honest, it was like 90% a joke. But it did teach me this, it did teach me this, that it is important to be able to communicate what you believe, what you know. And so even if you're struggling right now, that's okay, but we have to be able to answer this question. And amazingly, everybody, everywhere, across all of human history has an answer to that. As you stepped in here tonight and as you wrestle with that question, the chances are, you maybe don't know how to articulate your answer, but, but you have an answer for that. The Bible is made up of two testaments, one that's called old, one that's called new. The old one is not outdated, it's just older than the new. And the Old Testament, if you were to flip through it, it recounts some of the earliest groups of people. And it actually works as a historical document that, uh, what's the word, diggers, Al? What's the word uh, that they, archeologists. She wanted to be an archeologist growing up, so. They, they actually will use the Bible to go and find ancient remains. It's a historical document. And so they will use the Old Testament, and, and as you read through it, you will see some of the earliest groups of humanity. And one thing you might notice is as you read through it, not everybody worships the Christian God. They don't all worship the one true God, Yahweh, our God. But open up to any chapter, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, flip, flip through them, right? Any single chapter, and you will notice that they all worship some God. 
There is no such thing as atheists or agnostics, not in the scriptures. Every single place that you go throughout your Old Testament, they worship some divine being. Yet still, critics of Christianity and religion today will step back and say God is just a religious construct. They'll step back and say, maybe if you destroyed or got rid of or these disappeared gatherings like this in community, if those went away, maybe the concept of God would go with them. But again, that doesn't stack up against the thousands of missionary stories across history where these people will go to unreached or uncontacted people groups. Missionaries will travel to the ends of the earth. They will go and live out the Great Commission as Jesus told us. They will travel all over reaching people. And you know what they find every single place they go? They're all religious. Asia, Africa, Europe, North America, South America, it doesn't matter. Every single time a missionary goes and finds an unreached people group. They have no contact mostly with the outside world. They have no affiliation with Christianity, but what they find is they're religious. They worship some kind of spiritual or divine being. It brings us to, to an idea that's been surfacing lately. It's called the rise of the nuns. And nuns is N-O-N-E-S, not like nuns, like old lady women. It's like the rise of the nuns. Like nuns is a group of people who have no religious affiliation. They do not associate with any divine being or God. Gallup poll in 2020 conducted a study to try and see where this group of people was at within America. And they found that about 20% of Americans, I think it was 21%, affiliated as none, no religious affiliation, no, no worship of a God. That's one in five of the people in our country who now identify with this none group. For reference, in 1950, that percentage was zero. It's this rise of people who is a fairly new, uh, new uh, conundrum, a fairly new problem that we're facing where people are disassociating with the reason for God. But I'm telling you, everybody everywhere has an answer for who is God. Because when we're asked that question, Christians, we point up to God. We say, he is our ruler. He is our creator. He is our divine supreme being. When you ask that of an atheist, they still have to answer those questions, but instead of pointing up, they point in. When answering the question, who is God, even the non-religious people have to point to something, and they point to themselves. They point to themselves as self-worship. They become the ruler. They become the sense of morality. They become the supreme being above all else. The reason I say all of that to you tonight is because the need to know who God is is woven into our existence as people. There's no escaping it. Everywhere you go, always and forever, you have to answer this question and you already have an answer to it. So what do you say? When someone asks you your opinion on God, how do you answer? Who is God? In that, I'm gonna take us to John 14, where Jesus thankfully has a statement for us there. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to grab one on your way out. Otherwise, John 14 will be on the screen behind me. And as you flip there, I'm gonna pray for us. Jesus, thank you for the chance to open up your word tonight, to be led by your spirit. I pray that you'd speak through your word, that you would meet us where we're at. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. John 14 starts with an encouragement. Jesus says, do not let your hearts 
be troubled. This is how he starts the chapter of John. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And biblically, when the word heart is used, it's not talking about the anatomical organ in your chest that pumps blood. Jesus is not warning the disciples about heart disease. What he is telling them about is he's speaking the heart is the core. It's the center of who a person is. Jesus is saying at the center of who you are, don't be worried. At the deepest part, the most central part, the core of who you are in your heart, do not worry. And he says this because at this point, the disciples were about to lose it. Like they are on the cutting edge of freaking out. The best example I could come up with this last week is when a bee flies in the room. And there's some people who are cool, calm, and collected, right? The bee flies in and you understand like a rational human being that the bee is probably more scared of you than you are of it, right? And so you just let it buzz around and then eventually it leaves. Then there's other people in here who anytime a bee enters the room, you trip out. <laughs> like, you start losing it. You just can't even like, you stop rationally thinking it's like your world is about to end. My wife, she's a bee tripper outer, right? <laughs> When a bee flies in, she just, she can't even, right? It's, it, it's totally, and it's at this moment when I see the bee fly into the room that something happens. I can see her blood pressure start to rise. I can see her tense up. I can see her start to get anxious and worried and she, she's, she wants to freak out. And that's the condition of the disciples in this moment. They are on the cutting edge of about losing it. Their blood pressure is through the roof that they are so anxious, so worked up, they cannot even hold it together. And Jesus tells them, take heart, don't worry. And if you know the context of John 14, you really can't blame them for being worried. John 14 happens in the middle of a very important dinner meeting. It's something you've maybe heard of, it's called the Last Supper. It happens between John 13 and stretches through John 18. And so we've picked it up and we've started reading what is being said at this dinner. And here's what Jesus is telling them. It is his last supper. So he's, he's about to get murdered. And, and, and this is what he says. He says he's leaving because he's going to die. To make it worse, Jesus says Satan himself is opposing them. He informs them that Satan has planted a traitor in their midst. But he gives them, he gives them a little courage. He says, even if you catch him, you'll all eventually fall away. And he lays it on extra thick when he tells them that even Peter, their fearless leader, will disown Jesus. This is the Last Supper. <laughs> Jesus in his final moments with his disciples is telling them about all the struggle that is to come. And so yeah, they're about to lose it. They are so anxious and worked up and so Jesus speaks to them on top of all that and he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. And don't you just love that? Right, anybody get anxious every once in a while and someone says, well, just don't worry. Right, you get mad, you're driving down the road, someone cuts you off and they're like, well, just don't be mad, don't, just don't be mad about it. Right, just, just calm down, just, you know, you always want to punch that person in the face. <laughs> and Jesus says, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled and we can take it seemingly as he's telling them, just chill. But let me correct that a little bit. Jesus doesn't just hit them with some platitude that means nothing. Jesus stakes their peace on his divinity. Check this out. Jesus says right after that, he says, you believe in God, believe also in me. He tells them, do not let your hearts, do not be, do not be troubled, take heart. And he says, you believe in God, believe also in me. 
he extends this challenge to the disciples in the midst of their anxiousness. And it's a challenge that's, that's kind of crazy. When he says this to the disciples, they would have like reeled. They would have sat back and tried to wrap their heads around what Jesus is saying. It's almost as if I told you all right now to stand up and start flying, right? If you flapped your wings, you, you, you kicked your legs, you did whatever possible. If I told you to do that right now, you'd all look at me like I'm crazy, I hope. This is what the disciples are looking at Jesus like because he's presented this challenge to them that makes no logical sense. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. And in doing that, he makes himself equal to God. The disciples, they understood God. They'd spent their whole lives, many of them spent their whole school careers learning about God. They understood who he was and what it meant to follow him, what it meant to live in relationship with him. But what they didn't understand was when Jesus made himself equal with God. That was crazy talk to them. Their entire concept of faith is being flipped on its head by what Jesus is saying right here. But really, Jesus is answering our question. Who is God? He's telling us he is. Jesus is God. This is the challenge he presents to the disciples. It's exactly that. It's a challenge. Something that's intellectually hard for them to wrap their heads around. Or again, it's crazy talk. But in the midst of their anxiousness and their worry, Jesus delivers them this challenge. And it's because in all of that that they're facing, and in all of that that you're facing, whatever life is throwing at you, whatever makes you anxious and worried and upset and it feels like you are just not gonna make it, Jesus has staked their peace in the midst of adversity on his divinity. He has staked their peace in the midst of the situation on his divinity, which should be a, a huge weight off our shoulders because for them it was never about being good enough or worthy enough or skilled enough or strong enough or wise enough. That when everything fell apart, it wasn't on them. It was on God and he had it. Jesus is stepping into their situation. He's stepping into our situation and he is staking peace. Something we all desperately need. He's staking it on himself. You don't need to earn it. You don't need to deserve it. You don't need to work for it. You need to rest in Jesus' peace. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In saying that he makes himself equal to God. But we're gonna talk about that more later. Verse two. When uh, Jesus continues, he said, my father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may be where I am also. You know the way to the place where I'm going. There's some great stuff in here that we just unfortunately don't have time for, but what I want us to zoom in on is Jesus' last words. He says, you know the way to the place where I am going. He says this to the group of disciples. And I love Thomas's response to this. He says, Thomas is this in verse five. Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? I think this is a hilarious exchange because Jesus is like, you know, right? Right, you know. And Thomas is like, nope. <laughs> He's got no idea. He's like, Jesus, I have no idea what you are talking about. But the reason I love this is because it's relatable. I know you guys have felt that moment 
whether you're in class or you're at work and someone says something to you and they make an assumption that you know something you do not know. And it's in that moment, you gotta make a decision. Are you gonna ask and admit and be honest and maybe look like a dummy or are you just gonna fake it till you make it? <laughs> Some of you, we have been there over and over and over again. We've been Thomas here in this situation. But the beautiful part is Thomas is never afraid to ask the question many others are. He gets the nickname commonly Doubting Thomas. It's because he never held back his doubt. When Jesus proposed something and Thomas was confused, he said it. And to be honest, like I think we could all use a little bit more Thomas in our lives. This confidence and this just courageousness to wrestle with the doubts that we have, to ask the big questions nobody else wants to. Because when Thomas asks a question, Jesus responds to it. Thomas's question, it breaks down like this. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? When we look at that question, he tells Jesus, we don't know the where or the way. What he's really saying is we don't know the destination and we don't know the directions. We don't know the destination, God, we don't know where you're going, Jesus. How are we possibly supposed to find the direction if we don't know the end destination? This is the question Thomas is asking of Jesus. And it's the response Jesus will start to give him in John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Thomas asked about destination and direction, so Jesus starts with the directions. He tells him, I am the way. In saying this, Jesus is invoking imagery of a path. You put that one up for me, thank you, Nate. And this is what Jesus is talking about. Jesus didn't have no iPhone, no Google Maps, no GPS. And I remember growing up, my dad would do MapQuest. Do you guys, you guys' parents do that? He literally had to print out instructions. I thought that was old. Jesus had this. This was the path that Jesus was talking about when he started to speak. And the reason we put this picture in our mind is because it's important it's this and not some road we know. Because what Jesus is articulating when he says, I am the way, I am the path, is he's talking about the way they would have traveled. Nobody punched into Google Maps how to get from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. The way that they did it is they followed the paths of people who had gone before them. The path here didn't just show up one day. It was beaten day after day by the feet of travelers who had walked the path before them. And so when Jesus says, I am the way, when I, he says, I am the path, he is telling his disciples and he is telling us he has walked the path. His footsteps have carved the way. It's an invitation yet again to follow him. To get to where you are meant to go, you have to walk through Jesus. You have to walk with him. You have to follow where he is going. There is no other way to get to the destination. But that's not all Jesus said. He said he is the way, but he also said he is the truth. If I can say it another way, Jesus is the way because he is the truth. Last summer, I did a little bit of hiking and I found myself frustrated on more than one occasion. And here's why. When you go hiking, you usually show up at a trailhead. And a trailhead is just like a cluster of, of people with different paths off of it. But the problem is, is that these trailheads, the signage is always horrible, right? It looks something like this. I think this is, I had to get this picture from like Iceland, so ignore the words. But it looks something like this. And there's a post with 14 different signs off in different directions, all with different destinations, all with different mileages, all pointed in a vague direction. And so the problem is you've got to kind of line it up 
and try to figure out which path you're going to be on to get to your destination. And so one morning we hit a trailhead like this. We, we thought we got on the right path and we started hiking. And this was supposed to be like a mile long journey, right? Nothing crazy. I didn't even, I don't think I even had my hiking boots on. Like I was doing it in my vans. I was walking and we were hiking and hiking and hiking and I was exhausted. We got to the point where I'm complaining. Everybody else is sick of me complaining, but I'm like, where is this place at? And eventually this family started coming in the other direction. Like cute family, you know, mom, dad, couple little kids, and they're all giddy and excited about their hike. I'm dying at this time. And I humbled myself and I decided I'm just going to ask. I'm going to ask for directions, which is, it's tough to do sometimes. But I asked, and what happened was these people had the audacity to look at me and then to point to the other side of the river to the path I was supposed to be on. You see, we got on the wrong path. And we had hiked and hiked and hiked, but we were never making that destination. It didn't matter how hard I worked, how much I complained, how long we went, how much effort I put in, how many times I checked the map, we were on the wrong path. It was never leading to our destination. Jesus is the way because he's the truth. He is the path, the right path, the correct path, the true path. It's why he finishes in John 6 saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you want to get to the destination that is the Father, you have to get on the right path. This life will offer you so many paths. If you just follow me, if you just walk with me, if you just go this way, if you just work hard enough or earn enough or be successful enough, if you just marry the right person or get the right account or get the right job, if you do all the right things, this life promises you the destination. And while some of that sounds great, and to be honest, as you start of it, some of it feels great, it'll never get you where you're meant to go. It's the wrong path. Jesus is the right path. He is the true path. He's the only way to the Father. I want us to go back to Thomas's question Thomas asked about destination and directions. First of all, Jesus started answering directions when he said, I am the way and the truth. We found out that Jesus is the way because he is the truth. He is the right path, the only path that leads to our destination that is God, the Father. But at the same time, there's one last word that Jesus gives as his destination and he says, I am the life. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The word Jesus has used there in the Greek is the word zoe. If you were with us in week one, you, you would remember I talked about zoe. It's what Jesus was talking about when he said I was, he was the gate. And the reason there's overlap in this word and there's overlap in this destination is because Jesus has always been leading to life. Zoe is eternal life, fulfilled life, abundant life. It is life to the max and to the full. It's whatever Jesus is leading to. It is the, the, the blessing of life. Whether he is the gate or the good shepherd or the vine or the way, the truth or the life or the light, whatever Jesus is and wherever he is leading, it is always to this place of light. All right, it's to this place of life. That's where Jesus is going. That's where he's leading you. Do you want fulfillment? Jesus is leading to life. Do you want purpose? 
Jesus is leading to life? Do you want identity? Do you want to know who you are? That nobody else in your life and nobody good, bad, or can, can shape who you are, that you can speak and be firm in your identity. Do you want that? Jesus is leading to life. Do you want to feel accepted? It feels like everywhere you've gone, you've always been rejected, that nobody has ever taken you in. Jesus is leading to life. Do you feel outcast, lonely, rejected, depressed, anxious? Jesus is leading to life. It has always been where he's going. It, is always, it always will be where he's going, and he wants you to come with him. Verse 7 transitions us a bit, but it takes us where we'll finish the rest of the night. Jesus says, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Earlier, we, we began talking about how Jesus and God are equals. It was this crazy statement he threw at the disciples, and now he's circling back to it. But in the midst of him teaching them about that, uh, Philip interrupts him. And Philip interrupts him and says this. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. If we thought Thomas asked a bold but kind of dumb question, Philip just fell on his face. <laughs> like, really, like, Thomas walked so Philip could run here. Like, he, he, he asked this question that he doesn't even understand the implications of it. What he's asking is he wants God to show up in this Ma visible manifestation of his presence in front of him. That's what Philip is asking. He says, show us God and that will be enough. If God showed up in this place, this is what he says to Jesus, if God showed up here, then I'd trust you. He's asking for this visible manifestation of God's presence, often referred to as a theophany. What Philip is picturing is probably something like Exodus where God led the people either by a pillar of smoke during the day or a pillar of fire by night. Imagine that for a second. For Exodus, they wandered through the wilderness, literally the desert for 40 years. And every day, you know what they followed? Something like that. A huge column of smoke in the air. At night, it was a huge pillar of fire that they followed through the wilderness. They believed God was right there in front of them. Or on the right here, right, you're right, yeah, right here, it is Mount Sinai when Moses receives the Ten Commandments. God's presence comes to rest on the mountain and there is thunder and lightning and, and crazy noise and they can see what is the presence of God right in front of them. The Israelites were scared to even approach the mountain because they were so convinced God was there in that place. This is what Philip is asking for. But do you see some of the irony in that? Philip says to Jesus, show us God. Jesus, who is God. Standing in front of him. God is standing there as Jesus. And Philip is still asking the question, who is God? Show us the Father. But again, just like Thomas's question, I think Philip's question is relatable. What he wants is he wants for sure concrete proof of who God is. If he's about to continue to follow Jesus down this path, if he's going to sacrifice everything and follow this Jesus guy, he wants to be absolutely sure God is who God is. Have any of you ever felt that? 
that if you're gonna go away from the world and if you're gonna start to follow Jesus, you, you want concrete proof that God is who he says he is. You would love God to show up as a pillar of smoke or a pillar of fire. You would love him to dwell in your dorm room, right, as he did on Mount Sinai. You would love for him to show up in this theophany, this manifestation of his presence that is visible and tangible. Because sometimes we just want that proof of God. I've certainly been there. In my walk with Jesus, I have had mountaintop moments in incredible valleys. And all across both of those, I would have loved to see God show up in the ways he did in Exodus. But almost every single time I pray those prayers, you know what God does? He takes me back to a question. And he asks me, where has God shown up for you? This is where God takes me back to. Because I'm praying and I'm asking for something that Philip is asking for. But in the same way that there was this irony as Jesus stood in front of Philip, there is this irony in our lives when we ask God, show up, prove yourself, come down from the mountain, be what we desire you to be. It's this ironic statement because God has shown up. He is showing up. Every single time we step into a room like this, it is evidence in pres in, of God's presence and his goodness and his nature. The breath we have in our lungs when we wake up, right? There's this finiteness to life where it is here one day and it is gone the next. And I know we're young and I know we don't always love thinking about that, but that's a reality. Some of you have felt that too real. And so to wake up with breath in your lungs, to show up in this place is a first testament that God is who he says he is. And then you can look back over your story. Where has God shown up for you? When he brought you peace to your anxiousness, joy to your depression, friends to your loneliness, purpose when you felt like you didn't have anything worth, when you felt like nobody cared about you. And I tell you, remember those moments. Because the irony is God is all around us, always showing up. Yet this question that Philip is asking, his, this command he's asking for, he's ultimately just trying to figure out who God is. The same question we've been wrestling with tonight. And Jesus is kind enough to remind him yet again that he is God. He does this in three ways. First, Jesus is God because his character is that of the Father. Jesus says to Philip, you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. Here, Jesus is foreshadowing what he'll talk about in John 15. At this same table, but one chapter later, Jesus will begin the conversation Ben actually preached about last week. Jesus tells them that he is the vine and the way to transformation is by abiding in him. Here, Jesus is saying, he says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. What he's talking about there is that they have the exact same character that the transformation that is available to us, Jesus has perfected it. He has lived in it. He has been transformed. He has been redeemed. Jesus is in the Father completely. They have never separated. They are one in character, indescribable unity. Everything that describes the Father describes Jesus. The Father is good. Jesus is good. The Father is loving. Jesus is loving. The Father is kind, Jesus is kind. The Father is powerful, Jesus is powerful. The Father is holy, Jesus is holy. The Father is awesome, 
I love when the Old Testament uses that word, awesome. Jesus is awesome. Everything that the Father has, everything that he is in his character and in his nature, Jesus has it. That's number one. Number two, Jesus is God because his teachings are that of the Father. He says to Philip again, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Jesus spent three years doing ministry on the earth. Three years walking around the Middle East, teaching people. Oftentimes as you read, you might see people come up and call him rabbi. Rabbi translates to teacher. The reason they did that is because of the primary, primary, primary aspect of what Jesus was doing on this earth was he was teaching. He would go and he'd instruct people about who God is, who God's kingdom is, how they can live in it. This is what he did as he traveled around for three years. Now Philip was there for that. Philip walked with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. Where Jesus went, Philip went. He was one of his core homies. Like everywhere they went, they were together. It's probably true they even slept in the same rooms, right? Like there was no separation in the relationship. So when Jesus taught it, Philip heard it. And after three years of being together, Jesus is calling Philip back to remembrance. And he's saying, remember what I taught. Those words I did not speak by my own authority, but the Father spoke through me. And now we can't hear Jesus' words, but we can read them. We can read Jesus' words. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these gospel letters in your New Testament, you can open them, and sometimes your Bible will have red letters that actually highlight Jesus' words for you. And you can open it, and you can read it, and you can see what he's saying here about how his teachings match that of the Father. The words he spoke came from the Father and spoke through him. Finally, number three, Jesus is God because his miracles match that of the Father. He said, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He refers back to his character and then he says, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Jesus said, my character is that of God. My words are that of God. Also, my works are that of God. He's talking about miracles like healing the blind curing the sick, turning water to wine, multiplying the fish and the bread, making the paralyzed walk, cleansing the leper, driving out demons, calming the storms, or bringing the dead back to life. These are things Jesus actually did that Philip tangibly saw, not only Philip, but hundreds of others. Things that only God could do, Jesus did. His works are that of the Father. They point back to him over and over and over again. Jesus performed miracles to relieve people's suffering and affirm his divinity. I love how John finishes his gospel talking about Jesus' works. He says in John 21, 25, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books written about it. Do you understand what John is saying here? That if every single amazing, miraculous thing Jesus did got written down, he's saying there's not enough ink in the world, pages in the world, books to be had in the world, space to store those books. There is literally not space in our globe for all of the things Jesus did. Those are the works 
that Jesus is referring to. He did many of these miracles, things only God could do, and they affirmed his divinity. Jesus is again proving to Philip, and I hope to us, that he is God. Tonight, we've looked at the question, who is God? And it's a question everybody everywhere has to wrestle with. It's, it's a question everybody everywhere has an answer to. Tonight, whether you could come in here and, and articulate that answer or not, we've looked at Jesus declaring, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. And as he said that, he told us he is God. He equated him with God. His character, his, his, his teachings, his miracles all point back to he is God. So our response is to follow him, to come to him, that that life he is promising, it's available to us. And I hope we would take him up on it, that we would come and experience the life that God the Father has given us through Jesus Christ, his son. And I want to finish with this. I've told you everybody everywhere has an answer to this question, but yet I want you to wrestle with it more. Because here's what I typically see. I don't, when I talk to many atheists, I very rarely see someone who has adequately wrestled with the question, who is God, who has found truth and fact and decided to reject God. That's, that's pretty rare. What I often see is people who have never wrestled with that question. Or if they have, they've done it at such a superficial surface level that they don't really have a root to their answer. And unfortunately, in here tonight, I think we have some of those same symptoms. That some of us, we've never really wrestled with the question. You've never tried to articulate who God is to you. That maybe someone has told you, your grandparents or your parents or a friend, they told you who God is, and so you're here tonight but your roots to that are really shallow. And so I challenge you, will you wrestle with it? Will you answer the question for yourself, who is God? Because yet again, I stand up here and I tell you, Jesus is God. But I also ask you, do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe he is who he said he was? Do you believe that he is the representation of the Father? Do you believe that he did everything that he said he did? That he died and he rose from the grave and he came back victorious and he offers you life? Do you believe it? Who is God?